I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. I have a theory one of the reasons folks have such a difficult time spotting and naming abuse in churches is because most of us were conditioned to find toxicity normal. Abusers found a ripe crop of individuals who were programmed to respect authority as the voice of God, see themselves and their bodies as evil and untrustworthy so they ignore their own intuition, and they're taught to give grace and forgive when they're horribly mistreated. Typically, however, this only works in favor of abusers. You'll find a lovely concoction of judgment reserved for pretty much everyone else. This is why today's topic is really important. We need to understand narcissists and the systems they create around them. We need to be aware that there are people in the church deliberately using the Bible and the name of God to cause harm to feed their own egos. The guests today, Libby Davis and Nikki G, are two wonderful individuals who have been studying narcissism after their own painful encounters. They now work to help others recover from these damaging relationships. I'm so excited to share their expertise with you on the Uncertain podcast. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden. Tears of Eden is a nonprofit providing a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. For the past couple months, we've been piloting our first online group of survivors. We meet once a month on Zoom to discuss trauma and the unique aspects of spiritual abuse. And then we've been continuing the conversation in a private Facebook group. We're piloting this group in hopes that we'll be able to make this accessible to anyone who needs it and wants it. In other news, we're also going to have our first virtual gala in September. We're in the process of putting this together now, and I'll give you more details as the date draws closer. This will be a focused time for sharing the work of Tears of Eden and what this organization is about and what we hope for in terms of caring for survivors of spiritual abuse. Here's my interview with Nikki and Libby. So I am here with Nikki and Libby. We met over Clubhouse. I've communicated over Instagram. We did a clubhouse room about narcissism and it was fantastic. Both of you guys did amazing. And so I knew that I wanted to record this episode and ask you guys the exact same questions that I asked you in clubhouse because I want to be able to share this with more people. Narcissism is a subject that just comes up so much in this spiritual abuse, abuse in churches cases. There's almost always, I don't think I've heard of a case yet where there hasn't been a narcissist involved in some capacity, at least someone pulling the strings, either it's a pastor or an executive director in some capacity. So it's a really big deal for the abuse in church conversation, spiritual abuse conversation. Both of you guys have so much experience with this. So I'm really excited. And I will ask both of you just how did you come to your knowledge of narcissism and why did you choose to follow this path of studying this and helping people with this? Why don't you go first, Nikki? Hello, Catherine. Well, how I came into all of this was after my, I've been in multiple cults before. So the last one I was in, after I came out of it and tried to make headway of what was going on in my life, I kind of went into research mode. And so I started studying on topics like mind control and 
cults and manipulation. And I kept seeing the word narcissist pop up. And I mean, obviously I heard of the word narcissist, but I never really took the time to figure out what it was. The most I knew about it, and don't laugh, was, oh, that's a Jezebel spirit. That's the most I heard, especially in the arenas that I was in. They equated Jezebel spirit with narcissism. That's a whole nother pod probably for another day. And so I said, okay, it's got to be more than this. And I started doing some research and I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. That's this person that's been in my life and this person that's been in my life. And not that I was a clinician to be able to diagnose, but just looking at some of the traits, I was able to see a lot of similarities with different people that have been in my life. And so, you know, For me, I just, I was tired of being in multiple cults, you know, multiple narcissistic relationships. At that time, it just seemed very toxic. Once I had language, I just kind of went crazy and just started doing research for about a couple of years, at least in the beginning. And just, you know, YouTube was my best friend. I went to some therapists, but they really didn't have enough to give me. So I just took what I could get from them grateful for the help, but then I did my own homework. And now that's all I hear is narcissism everywhere. It's all over Clubhouse and TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. Everybody's hearing about narcissism now. So it's like when you're shopping for a car and you have like the specific car in mind that you're looking for. And then suddenly you like see it everywhere. It's like, exactly. If you're aware of it, you just see it everywhere. Um, and I, and I think it's something that people should have some general knowledge of whether they encounter a narcissist or have encountered a narcissist in their life or not, just to understand and be aware of certain traits for their own protection. It's just a a good thing to know, I would think. So, Yeah. yeah. Do we have any stats about like, I mean, how do we even know that? Like how many narcissists exist and do you have any, or you're nodding your head, Libby? I don't have any stats, but I, the hard part is most narcissists are not going to go. They're not going to self-report. Right. So, you know, I'm pretty sure there's more than any type of percentage that they actually have, you know, out there. So a lot of people that claim to say, oh, narcissist, you know, everybody's claiming everybody's a narcissist. You know, there's technically only such and such percent, which is a small percent, you know, exists in the world. I'm like, that's what's reported. Most narcissists will not. uh, And they're good fakers. They're good manipulators. You're not always going to know a book I want to write or at least some research that I want to do is the narcissistic pastors and their wives, also another subject, but how often there's this very outspoken wife behind the narcissistic pastor. Anyway, Libby, how did you get into this? How did you start learning about this? What is your story in encountering narcissism? Okay. First, I just want to answer the the numbers question. Nikki's hundred percent right. As far as like the reporting, it's, it's going to be weak. The research is going to be weak. If you study it, a lot of the psychology world doesn't, isn't comfortable with the term, doesn't like it. So they're like, it's anyway, there's, so there's a lot of reasons why the numbers are not going to prove out. There's been research and it's, it claims anywhere between one to 10% of the general population are narcissists. The research that I fall back on is this 4%, but if you're going to ask me the study, I would probably have to go spend a year looking it up because I'm sure it was the number I found eight years ago, probably. You said one to 2%? One to 10%. Like the studies vary really widely. I consider 4% the more accurate. That means one out of every 25 people, you know, so think of how many Facebook friends you have, right? That's a lot. Everyone knows a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Now you might not know they're narcissists. Most narcissists don't know themselves are narcissists. They don't think exactly. about it. They have a lot of self-awareness. Of so yeah, but 
but they are narcissists are traditionally drawn to high power positions mm -hmm. ceos of large companies those who have done certain research on it say okay if the average general population is four percent if we're talking about ceos 25 to 50 percent of large corporations not all ceos pastors policemen lawyers anywhere where there's power Oftentimes, even nonprofits, heads of nonprofits, believe it or not, mm -hmm. something called communal narcissism. Okay, so to answer your question about yeah. me, how do I, <laughs> I love it? <laughs> I always thought that narcissism meant you were vain, just like the character narcissist in the myths. I was in a relationship for a very long time with a narcissist. I did not know it, but the Lord led me out of it, thankfully. And about a year later, I was, for some reason, this person I went to uh, therapy together. The therapist, after a session or two, asked to see me alone and said, Libby, this person is a narcissist. You have no idea how dangerous they are. And I thought, oh, they're vain. No, they're not that vain. And they're like, no, let me teach you what narcissism means. I had no idea. This was in 2005. I had no idea what the word meant. I started studying it and studying it. It still never dawned on me that pastors could be narcissists because, oh, these are Christians. These people know the Lord. They love the Lord. They preach the word of God. Doesn't mean that they are not narcissists. And it also doesn't mean they're Christians. God one day reminded me of the scripture about, you know, there will be people preaching my name. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And the idea that I actually could have known a wolf just blew me away. I was like, no, not these people be, they might be. Anyway. So that's why I first learned about narcissism. It took me, I lost everything. I lost my home. I lost my identity. I lost my family. I lost my family of origin for a time. I lost every friend I had except for one. The narcissist decided to turn people against me and it was very effective. I lost the town I lived in. I ended up living in West Philly in a frat house at 40 years old because that was where I could live. And every three months I had to move to be safe. So I had to learn about narcissism for my own survival. I had to learn to figure out who was safe and who wasn't. The idea of spiritual abuse, though, that was very real, but I still didn't connect it to narcissism until just a couple of years ago. And like Nikki said, YouTube, I YouTubed everything. I read everything. I learned everything. I barely survived it. I mean, the physical ramifications on my body, the mental, the emotional, the financial, the legal had a huge impact. So once I got to the other side, once I found the peace and the healing, and it took years and wasn't easy or quick. I just knew I couldn't do anything else but help others who were way back there where I used to be. Thank you so much for sharing. Next question. Libby, are you ready? Describe narcissism in 30 seconds or less. Okay. A narcissist is a person who at a very young age feels a lack of sense of self or hates themselves. Therefore, they instead of growing like the regular person does and says, hey, I'm going to become more of my person. They say, no, I'm going to put on a facade and become somebody else. And they're kind of like an empty bucket with holes in it. And you can pour into them and pour into them and it'll always just drain out. And so it is their job in life and their belief is that they have to get supply, a thrill, a feeling, an urge, a, a sense of energy from another person. So they will cling on to anybody and get that. Now they can come off as the nicest person. They can be quiet narcissist they can be a loud narcissist but basically they see other humans as tools and i think that's 30 seconds Woo! okay i'm not answering that question <laughs> she's got it <laughs> you gotta try nikki you gotta try. i can't say the in 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> how about a sentence can you say describe narcissism in a sentence i could just give you some treats you know okay. talking about narcissistic treats <laughs> They have an excessive need for admiration. They disregard other people's feelings. They're attracted a lot of times to empaths. They like to dance with empaths. I would say they will pick the empath out of the crowd at the ball. 
and they'll go up to the empath or the rose in their mouth and they will put their hand out like this. It's like they feel that energy and they attract to you. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they use love bombing. They use manipulative language, not in the beginning, but eventually they will switch over to the manipulative uh, language. A lot of gaslighting, a lot of mind control techniques, and they discard their supply when they're finished with you so they can find, you know, more juicier steak to eat after they finish with you. So more juicier steak, or they blame you for not filling them. There you go. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Hers was better though. So I think you should keep them. (laughs) Don't take them both of them. Keep them both of them. Um, that was awesome. I loved it. So what is the difference between narcissism and then NPD? That was going to go to Nikki first. Nikki first. What is the difference between narcissism? My disclaimer is I am not a clinician. Okay. However, from what I've learned, what I've experienced, what I've seen and, you know, research, you know, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder is more pathological in nature. The narcissistic traits or narcissism is not pathological. So for the actual MPD, you have, it's a personality disorder. The DSM-5 talks about it's a cluster B personality disorder. And I think Libby talked about it earlier. It's an inflated sense of self. They are important, that deep need for admiration, little to no regards uh, for people's feelings, lack of empathy, and very, they can't handle criticism a lot of times. It's just, you know, hey, you want to do it this way? And there's a whole rage bomb going off just to give a difference of opinion. A lot, a lot of times they're alienated from loved ones. They struggle with depression. They may, on the front end, into the public. They're very grandiose and seem to be put together and seem like they have it together. But behind closed doors, when it's just them, there's a deep darkness that's seething. There's a loathing that's going on. And they can vacillate from feelings of feeling superior to that lull of depression and things of that nature. They have a big inflated belief that they're superior to other people. This is the, the MPD. And so it's pathological in nature. It's moving, it's growing. And people that have that disorder, those are the ones that are abusive with those traits. When you think about narcissism, people that may have some narcissistic traits may have some of those, but they're not harming people with it. I'll give you an example, okay? Let's say you got an award for your podcast. Maybe I'm throwing that out there. Somehow or another, it got to the podcast award people and you are recognized and validated for the hard work you've been doing. So for the next couple of weeks, you're feeling yourself a little bit, okay? Now, this is all internal. This may not be demonstrative, but you're feeling yourself. You're feeling good. You're like, I did that. You know, you're aware that you don't want to put that out on front street. So you're going to be a little humble, but on the inside, you feel good. People come and they congratulate you and things of that nature. Then eventually, a couple months later, that will wane and the ego will go back to a normal state with that's kind of healthy narcissism traits that we all kind of have on the low end of the spectrum. But when you start getting into the MPD, they did something, they wanted, they, they, they won an award, they're waiting for people to worship them and validate and acknowledge, and they don't get it. And when they don't get it, they don't just say, oh, well, that hurt a little bit, but I'm wrong with my life. No, now they may go to some manipulative type of tactic where 
Now they're going to, this is an extreme version, but okay. So Libby didn't congratulate you. So now you're going on Instagram and you're publicly smearing Libby's name. And she may sit there like, where in the world is this coming from? I didn't do anything to Catherine. Oh, but it feels like out of left field. It feels like out of left field. But a lot of it is the pathology that's, you know, the things that are happening going on the inside. The difference is the first uh, example, you felt those feelings of euphoria and everything like that. And, but you were okay. I know it's two different examples, but you didn't abuse anybody in that situation. You could have felt inflated and you could have been an obnoxious person. You could have been, you know, gotten to the point where you could have been harmful with your inflated ego. You could have got up here and strutted your stuff with your knowledge to the point that you could have started lording it over people and calling people to draw to your knowledge now that you have this award. But you didn't do that. You rode the wave. You felt good. You moved on. Uh, an MPD person, when they don't get what they want, they start to act out and become manipulative and abusive and things of that nature and toxic. And so when people are doing this on a continual basis, you know, kind of lock up, the spectrum is wide. Then we start saying, hey, wait a minute now. This is beyond just some low level narcissistic traits. We actually have perhaps a, a potential personality disorder here. So not a clinician. I just like to use analogies to explain. I think that's things. an important thing to know too, is that you're not necessarily going to see it immediately. Like you said, this is like traits that happen over time. And right. so you might not know until you've seen this toxic pattern happen over and over again. And I think that's right for people to know, because you get into a relationship with a narcissist and you're like, how was I so dumb? Like, how did right. I not see it? Well, you're not going to. <laughs> like, right. They, they and the thing is, they part. don't, the person with the MPD doesn't, wouldn't even think there was something, wasn't something wrong with slandering, you know, like, yeah, I slandered, but they don't even realize that inside the reason why they slander is because they felt rejected. So there's a, like a disconnection within them. And then the person receiving it's like, Hey, wait, this is out of nowhere. Like, why would you do that? You know? So it's something that you have to watch. It's a pattern. It's something that develops. It's not a one, two punch. And then, Oh, now I understand. So, yeah. Anything to add Libby? narcissism and npd that that was really good i there there are two thoughts i had one also not a clinician and i would not diagnose that most narcissists never get diagnosed so if if someone ever says to you oh my spouse is one and somebody says well they weren't diagnosed most narcissists will never be diagnosed so don't discount that but a lot of people research it see everything narcissism on a continuum and everybody's on it to those who have no self-awareness or no, no self-protection, which is not healthy to those who are narcissists. I, and then, but there becomes a tipping point. And Nikki did a really good job describing it. I only concentrate on once the tipping point happens. I don't refer to all of us. As, yeah. What is that tipping point? That's a great question. This is how I look at it back in the, I think it was the 1970s, a Supreme court justice said, I can't describe to you what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. And that's how I've always answered the narcissism question. And I answer that in that you and I, we're not going to be able to decide someone else is a narcissist. We don't know them that well, but the person who lived their child, their partner, their best friend, member of their church, Whoever gets to know them and sees them on the inside, if they're saying it, 
I'm going to pretty much give their opinion a lot of weight. And more so, I'm going to give them the care they need, and I'm not going to focus on the narcissist. Mm-hmm. And that tipping point is how their actions are impacting others as well, too. You know, there's that thin line from, I, I feel inflated, my ego's inflated, I'm feeling good about myself. I may become an annoyance and a show off because my ego is inflated, but I'm not really doing harm to someone. But if I'm in the MPD spectrum towards the more intense, the malignant narcissist, the covert narcissist, nine times out of 10, those traits are not just within my world. Those traits, I am now harming people, abusing people, hurting people. Would a trait, and this is totally out of curiosity, would a trait be that they're targeting someone, not just like occasionally doing a mean thing? but maybe they've targeted you and it's like a pattern with you and they're not necessarily hurting everyone. They're hurting like a few specific people. Would that be an accurate assessment? I mean, I would think so because if you're hurting one person with those traits, it's still, you know, I don't, I think I'm answering your question correctly if I'm understanding it uh, correctly. Because if you think about a narcissist in a relationship, That's just one person, you know, so they're still harming someone. They're still mentally, uh, emotionally, psychologically abusing them, spiritually abusing them. And that that one person is enough, you know, but then when you get into systems, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. And it's really tragic. Yeah. I'm just yeah, I'm just considering like I at the church that I left, there were many nurses. It was like it like it was like a breeding background for bullies and one I was specifically targeted by, and no one else had that experience with him. He had this very like roly poly teddy bear personality. And then the senior pastor was a narcissist and he never targeted me. Like I was never targeted by him. He was very, I had some very bizarre interactions with him, but he never came after me. But when I heard about the stories of things that he did, I was like, oh, hell yes. <laughs> like, like totally fucked up. Like just the way that he would like go after people. So I don't know if that's a pattern so, or a sign. So wait, you said there's one leader, he would mess with you, but the, the, the higher leader. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the power dynamics that happens in an abusive, toxic, hmm. you know, it's almost like when you you know, get into narcissism and you start understanding certain roles, the flying monkey, that's a term that's used often. They're not just the ones that bring back things to the narcissist. They enable the narcissist. You know, they're almost like their ally, even though they're getting abused by the narcissist too. But when it comes in a church dynamic, you know, maybe one day I'll write something on the different roles because I have like so much up here. I just get it out. But, you know, it's almost like the head honcho I hate to say it like this, but they know who to delegate who sometimes who would have. Do they uh, have a meeting and they're like, you take Catherine. <laughs> it, it sounds like that's what would be going on. Right. You make but, her crazy. Go. Because <laughs> like, I had a friend, both of us were in the cult setting and we were just talking about this like a couple of weeks ago. And the main senior leader, she never had problems with, but some that were underneath said the most evilest things to her that she still struggles with to this day. And then there was another leader who never had a problem with him. 
But he, so many of our other friends had a problem with him too. So it's almost like the head leader, their spirit, so it's, it kind of like duplicates into other leaders. That makes so much sense. That is exactly what happened. There were and they multiple, carry- multiple. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. one leader can't do it all. So you have to kind of program it does and feel train like the other ones to do. <laughs> and here's the thing you have to keep in mind too, is they're not often aware they're doing anything wrong. Exactly. So what's happening is oftentimes a narcissist will get what's called a narcissistic injury. So it could be you walk past them and didn't say, didn't smile the right way or didn't say hi. Now I'm not trying to make people out to be, you know, and totally insane. Well, not that I'm insulting insane people, but so they are now thinking you're the person who has harmed them. Well, and, and in their mind, even if they've done something to hurt you, they often can't take that responsibility. So they've decided your response is about you and you're the bad guy now. And so they're not going to think bad about Joe Schmo or Sally Sweetheart or whoever, because that person hasn't hurt them. So what you're dealing with is the inner dynamic of the play, the interplay of, well, this person's being abusive to this one, but nice to everyone else. And this person being abusive to you, but nice to everyone else. That's more what it's about. Normally, no narcissist is mean to everybody, or he'd be, or he, she'd be a really bad narcissist because they would drive everyone away from them and they need people to get their energy, their narcissistic supply. So no. So it's not a calculated thing. It's more like they're operating on who hurt me this time. Yep. Well, here's what most of the time they're not calculated. However, if you create such a narcissistic injury and, and this doesn't happen all the time, but if you create such a deep narcissistic injury, they will spend a lot of their time long-term calculating stuff. I mean, they can play the long yeah, game. That's what my boss did. That happened to me in the yeah. last poll I was in to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the leader They're committed to it. <laughs> he, he knew he, I don't even, well, I think I know how I injured him, but I didn't even try to injure him. I didn't know I was injuring him. But he, and I think I might've said this about this story in Clubhouse, but he knew what to do on what person. So with my one friend, he would speak words to her and say certain things and put seeds in her mind to the point she started, I Jezebel, do I have a Jezebel spirit? Oh my gosh. Like she was spiritually trying to just pull stuff down out of her because she thought based off of what he said to her, this is who she was. Now going in, she didn't think that, but after him, using scriptures and talking about certain traits, she eventually started to adopt these things and think these things about herself. But he didn't do that with me. He pulled himself away. He did the love bombing and then he pulled back and then injected and did the abandonment thing. And then he would favor someone that just came in the church and put them. It's all power dynamics to keep you in line. Then it makes you want to surrender and suffer more and do more so you can get back in that spot. So it's nasty. Before we go to the question, just really quickly, I wanted to add one thing on your question about the NPD versus narcissism. I did not come up with this, but again, this is um, a head, one of the top people in the field of narcissism put it this way. Sometimes if you say, oh, I think someone is a narcissist, people will respond with, well, you can't diagnose. That's not your job. You can't diagnose. And, and she's like, look, somebody saying that is not diagnosing it. It's just them saying they're a jerk. So sometimes that's, yeah, that's all you're saying, but that's enough because you're not talking about gossip. You're talking about there's something wrong. 
So, okay. That's, I just wanted to add that. I love you for that, Libby. Well, I already loved you, Maniki, but you can love me for that too. I love (laughs) you for that because that, my heart, it hurts. I know I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a clinician. I'm not, I don't have degrees behind my name, but when I'm in certain spaces like Clubhouse, for instance, and there's people that are just coming to understand what they've been in, whether it's in their family or spouse or partner, church, whatever. Sometimes that validation that you're not crazy knocks off so much weight off of your life to realize this is what I've been dealing with. I'm not crazy. And to hear then, you know, I honor them and their field and their expertise, the clinicians and the psychologists, but to hear people then say, well, you know, you shouldn't diagnose it because I mean, you can't diagnose it. The person hasn't, you know, then you're going to set them back. Like, Uh, okay, it's just, I love that you said that because sometimes that's what they need to actually stand up and start moving in their healing just to know what they're dealing with. So thank you. It's like naming it. Yes. There you go. It's just naming it. And, and NPD is the clinical diagnosis. But like you said, anyone can be a narcissist. Like that's, there's that spectrum. And yeah, we need to be able to name it. I really appreciate that you said that too. Yeah, that was really helpful. You have, you guys have mentioned love bombing a few times. Do you mind describing that? Libby, I guess, go ahead and. uh, Okay. So love bombing is in the church setting, at least it is extra bit of friendliness. It is your first Sunday there at church and somebody's asking you to lunch and there's nothing wrong. It's great to ask somebody to lunch the first week, but it is more a continuous concept concentrated. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to hug somebody on the street. So I'm not against showing love to strangers. I don't have the greatest boundaries, according to some people, I'm sure, because I will, I'll hug somebody if they need it. But in, in the church, in the way of a narcissist, it's actually more of a plan. Oh, I take it back. In a narcissist's mind, they tend to put people up on pedestals very quickly. They see the world in black and white. So they'll put someone up on a pedestal. This person's very spiritual, or this is someone I want to love on. This is someone I want to take care of. But what happens after they've spent a lot of time getting to them quickly, then, oh, wait, you have a flaw. And all of a sudden you've fallen way off the pedestal and there is a withdrawal of all affection. So there is a devaluation. If you are looking at your past or if you're going to a new church, what can help you figure out if, the, if something is love bombing is just how am I feeling right now? Is this feeling uncomfortable? Is this person, is it someone who's just a little bit too friendly and maybe they're not trying to love bomb, but if it's a continuous, oh, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel comfortable. That's when you want to check with yourself. It's going to a new Bible study and having people share things with you that is really inappropriate for the first or second or third time getting to know you. So it is often a tool or it is often something used in churches that are either cults or high demand groups. And most people doing it, it they, it's because it's part of their the culture. They don't even know they're doing it after a while, but it's been set in place usually by a leader who likes people to open up and impart, it gives them more information about you. Oh, your dad did this or, oh, you went to jail for this? Oh, now I've got information about you that other people don't have. So that's my answer. I know Nikki's got something. Go Nikki. And some of the high demand cultic uh, areas I came out of, NAR, uh, New Apostolic Reformation, which is kind of a form of evangelicalism, where the apostle is the head, and then you have the prophet, you have the fivefold, the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, but everybody is up under the apostle. He's the set man. 
he has the vision and everything like that. So in a lot of those spaces, a lot of those spaces where there's apostle and the prophetic, and it's so much of the prophetic is often used as a love bombing tactic in these type of churches. And so that happens. Like I'm going to prophesy over you and like say these awful things about you. Right. Like, okay. So the last poll I was in, my friend invited me in. That's how I got there. And I started going to their prayer meeting first. And the type of ministry this was, it was more intercession, spiritual warfare, prophetic, all that stuff. So even to get to the prayer meeting, you had to, it was by invitation only because the leaders wanted to make sure you were able to handle the spiritual warfare that would come with the intercession. They didn't want to hurt anybody unintentionally. So, but my friend was in leadership, so she was able to vouch for me. And so I was able to get in. He said, hi, the leader and his wife said, hi. Before a couple of months, he said nothing to me. We would go into intercession. I'm enjoying it. I'm like, oh, I found my tribe, blah, blah, blah. I love this. And he didn't really say anything to me too much. And then one Tuesday evening, I'm in the prayer time and we're praying and die. And then he prophesies over me for like almost 15 minutes. And the stuff he said, you know, how a lot of people want to hear prophecy. How did they know? The only person that knew was God, you know? And so it's like, so what happens is that attachment it happens because there's this mesmerization almost. There's this drawing in. And so you start to almost look at this individual almost because it's like, how did you know something I never told you? And again, I'm not knocking the ability for a human being to sense something spiritually and convey it to other people. Like that is, that's how the world works to some degree. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But when people use that, as a ploy to draw all men unto them and reel them in, and they already have narcissistic traits, is a recipe for disaster. And a lot of the rooms I've done in Clubhouse, I've also talked about the other end of that. We can talk about the narcissist doing that and drawing someone in, but we have to deal with our desire to want to be prophesied over all the time. There's that hunger of somebody tell me about my life. Tell me what's next for my life. Let me rub the, the genie on the lamps. You know, speak to me because I don't want to deal with me. I don't want to take the time to have my own connection with God. I'm going to re- codependently rely on you. So let me attach that to you that way. You attach with your narcissistic traits this way. And boom, there we go. It's toxic on both ends. Yeah. And that kind of feeds into what Libby was saying about like trusting your, if you're feeling and how you feel when you're in contact with this, like amazing person, the CEO of the company, the senior pastor of the church, and they're giving you attention, even if you feel weird because of the mesmerization, as you called it, surrounding them, that can cause you to, you know, stuff it down. And then everyone else thinks that they're great. And so you just kind of stuff it down. And so I think that's super key that what Libby said about just like, how are you feeling? Like trusting what you're feeling, trusting your gut. Is this weird? Is this bizarre? Do you feel uncomfortable? That's really key. And we kind of address religious, how it would show up in a religious uh, context. Nikki, what are some characteristics of a narcissistic family system and how might this set someone up for 
falling for a narcissistic system in the future? This was the one I'm glad Nikki answered earlier. This is- <laughs> <laughs> she gave this question. She gave me this question. She was like, you need oh. to ask this question. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting, Nikki. I'm just sitting back with my water going, yeah, go, go. <laughs> Well, that's kind of what I talk about a lot in the club, spiritual abuse and cults on Clubhouse, connecting the narcissistic piece to the high controlling group, cultic type, you know, arena, because sometimes they're a lot, oftentimes they're parallel. And so you have someone, you come from a narcissistic family, usually the whole vibe of the family is centered around the narcissistic parent. So it's like they are the son. And the members of the family are the planets revolving around the parent, but the parent uses the children and other members of the family through manipulation, guilt, control, exploitation to meet the narcissistic parents' emotional needs, physical needs, financial needs, things of that. And a lot of times they're their unmet needs. And so when you have different roles, there's various terms you can give it, but what's typical for most people that um, know about the different narcissistic family roles, you have the golden child. And people have heard that term before. That's the favorite one. That's the one that the parent, the narc parent wants to make in their image. And, you know, you ever heard of a parent say, oh, I wanted to be a dancer, but, you know, my mother wouldn't let me do it, but now my daughter's here and I'm hoping that, you know, she can go into, and the daughter's like, I don't want to do dance, you know? Now that doesn't make it a narcissistic parent, but, you know, that child is an extension of their image. But that child also, there's sometimes this weird codependency match. And if you get a narcissistic mother, oftentimes with a golden child son, that's even sometimes more toxic because you can have emotional incest oftentimes. The, the son is fulfilling the emotional needs of the narc parent and that's nasty. And then you have the scapegoat. And it works is, on their gender too? Oh, absolutely. But with the, the narcissistic father, there's more criticism and disciplinarian because, you know, just the nature of how the father role and the mother role fleshes out. And if you get the scapegoat daughter, which, you know, I fall in that, that category, you have a lot of the guilt and the shame and the control and the golden child getting away with everything. And the scapegoat is the one that really feels like something's not right here in the family. They may not be able to articulate it. They may bring it up that something's not right, but their voice is often stifled and they're the ones that, you know, get the bad end of the stick. They're the, the dark sheep of the family, so to speak. Then you have the lost child. That's the child that I say, this is my little term, it's the scapegoat who graduated to be the lost child in a, in a weird way. They're the invisible ones, the forgotten child. They're on the outskirts. Let's say if you got five kids in the house, you never know where this child is. They're depressed, oftentimes sad. You know, the parent continues, the narc parent continues to manipulate, shut them down, criticize them and their emotional needs. None of the kids' emotional needs are usually met. It's all about the narc parent being met. So what does that look like as far as going forward in relationships when children become teenagers and young adults and go on and become adults? Well, oftentimes you can gravitate to narcissistic relationships, narcissistic friends, bosses, spouses, different things like that. You move further down the line, you can gravitate to narcissistic systems or groups because it seems familiar to you. And you have the narcissistic leader 
in a church, in a cult in particular, or a high demanding group, toxic church community where the pastor is like the narc parent. So the whole mode of the church is not where people can get filled and get encouraged and strengthened and learn about God. Now it turns into something totally different where the grandiose desires, the beliefs that they're superior to others, that leader now, that's what they think of themselves. They have this desire to put their cape on and save the world for Jesus. And so instead of looking at people like Libby coming in or Catherine coming into the church as people who want to just grow and connect, now they look at you as, you know, your commodity to them. How can I get Catherine and Libby to fund my goal and my dream of what I want to do as a leader. And so they'll use manipulative tactics. They'll use narcissistic tactics. um, They'll use the scriptures to enforce what their agenda is. And the roles look similar. You have scapegoat children in churches. You have lost children in churches. You have golden children. And those are the ones who are the favorites of the leader. They probably never slept, answered every phone call, went to every church meeting, paid every tithe above and beyond. They probably ratted out half the people in church that they thought weren't doing what the pastor would have liked. They have to stay in good graces. And so, especially if you make good money and leaders like that, you know, oh, you can be a leader in two seconds. And so they are revered and they're honored publicly and perhaps privately for an agenda purposes. But then the scapegoat in the church is the one that says, wait a minute, something's not right. This person is being, you know, manipulated. I'm going to go to the leader. Excuse me, you know, pastor so-and-so, I'm noticing blah, 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 blah. The scripture says da-da-da-da-da. I'm noticing these things are going on. And because you exposed, they don't like that. So, you know, you're treated as the scapegoat. And oftentimes you graduate to become the lost child in the church where if you still remain, you're on the outskirts, kind of disconnected from the other people in the family of God because you've been possibly publicly shamed. You've been ostracized. You've been told. I've People told stuff about me in, in a cult I was in. The first cult I was in that I had a demon and for no one to talk to me. And I'm like, oh, I graduated. I'm a, I'm a demon now. Like, you know, but that's because I was the first one to leave. And I had understanding of what happened after I left. And so therefore, in order to make sure people did not get that same knowledge, they had to discredit me and to, you know, make it seem like I was crazy or had a demon, as they said, so people would stay away from me. And so that's a small taste of the parallel parts Mm -hmm. of that. I talk more about that in Clubhouse, but but yeah, like that, I think it's helpful to know that you gravitate the, towards those systems in just because you grew up in that. And so it is familiar to you. Libby, what would you say to someone who found themselves in like these like repeated systems because they were familiar, who then starts to go down that like shame spiral of like, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me that I keep finding myself in this situation. What would you say to someone who felt that way. I first want to give them a big hug. And I would also tell them that if they find themselves under their quilt every Sunday morning because they can't bring themselves to get out of bed, it's okay. And it's normal. But there is also hope. 
there is hope for change. And that doesn't mean there's hope that the pastor in that, or not at, you know, we're using a pastor as an example. Sometimes it's not the pastor, but it might be somebody else in the church who helps control the culture of the church. But there's hope. Now, it doesn't mean that person's going to change because there's narcissism is a very rigid personality, which means there's, they're not going to change. If, if Jesus wants to change them, that's great. He just hasn't done it in front of me with any narcissist I know. There are some narcissists or some people who claim that they've changed. I am extremely skeptical because it is so rigid. And part of the problem with narcissism is it is a self-deceiving problem. Mm-hmm. so and and narcissists they hit rock bottom they hit all of them hit so most almost all of them have really ugly bad rock bottoms and they're still not going to change hmm. there is it's someone else's fault so no they hit rock bottom mm. oh yeah yeah like they people think oftentimes like oh i'm going to keep loving this person and maybe on their deathbed they're going to repent they're going to see the light they're going to come to jesus mm-hmm. or and and Usually they die complaining about the person who hasn't fluffed their pillow well enough. So they have lost everything at that point, lose their money, lose their home, lose their health, lose their youth, lose their family, lose, because they're really good driving people away more in this modern age when people are finally willing to go and losses, but they still usually it's going to, they're going to die saying, you know, it was God's fault or somebody's fault. Basically don't wait on a narcissist. Never. You know, I'm going to tell my story real quick, just in answer this, this might be appropriate for somebody to hear. So um, the narcissist in my life, I, I left literally being chased down the street and I got to a friend's house who was safe and they were getting me wet, wet towels for my hands because my hands were bloody. And at one point I went in the kitchen a couple of times to clean my hands. And at one point I had gone in and I was just alone for a moment And I saw in my mind, my narcissist kind of falling through the sky. You know, you imagine things in your head, right? So I saw this picture of my narcissist falling. And in my mind, I reached my hands out as quickly as I could catch him. Because you know what? This is somebody, you you love people. You don't want somebody to hurt. It doesn't matter what they've done to you. And you think at that point, you don't want them to hurt. But what I saw as I was doing that was that God's hands were a few inches below mine. And as long as I was catching my narcissist, they would never really fall the way into God's hands, maybe. And I had to say, that's not my job to catch them. I need to walk away. And I felt like the Lord was showing me, you need to walk away. You can trust me to take care of the narcissist in my time and my way. But I'm not God and I'm not Jesus. And I didn't die for that person. Jesus did. So, yeah, I recommend. Well, I won't tell people what to do, but I recommend they consider that there is yeah, an a narcissist. Can you, how would you speak to someone who, and either, either of you who, cause I can imagine that for a Christian in a church context who has grown up with this, like, you know, Jesus runs after you and he never stops. And, you know, if Jesus runs after you, then you should run after people and we should never give up. And, you know, that mentality, how would you speak to someone who's that, just that idea of you don't wait on a narcissist because you cannot expect them to change. Doesn't mean they won't, because you can't wait on them to change. And that might be just, you know, violating everything that we've been taught. What are you, what would you guys say to that? It violated everything in my soul, everything I was taught. I suffered for a couple decades because it just, it wasn't in my theology. 
But one thing God, I felt like the Lord showing me, do you remember when the four friends brought their friend on a mat to Jesus? Yes. And they, and the, I do they, remember that I saw it. They pulled the roof <laughs> apart and they lowered the friend down and Jesus healed this friend. Anyway, what Jesus said to them was that their faith, that it wasn't the, the person who's being lowered on the mat, but it was the faith of the friends. And Jesus basically, God had to show me that, honey, you need to let someone else carry this person. I wasn't going to get healed as long as I was worrying about the narcissist. I felt like God saying, you know what? Let someone else have faith for this person. So that's where the Lord really did for me. What does Nikki, I'm curious about Nikki's. Something I, I didn't mention before that your whole story just made me think about and your question, Catherine, about the narcissistic family and the connection with the cults and the narcissistic family, your program to meet the needs of someone else for your own. So when you are in a relationship with a narcissist, romantically, let's say, the trauma bond is there and you're thinking about them. Oh, well, their parents wounded them or they went through this, they went through that. No one loved them. No one, that's why they are the way they are. And you feel like you have to put the narcissist's needs before your own in a church setting. Oh, well, you know, leader, elder, pastor, you know, they got a lot on their plate. You know, they just lost their son or such and such had cancer or something. You're making excuses because there's a a layer and there's a programming that's still in you that says, I have to put someone else's needs ahead of mine. And if you have that programming in you, that's not dealt with, you will gravitate to scriptures that say, put someone else before your own. You won't gravitate to the scriptures that talk about God telling you to love yourself first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was part of my problem. I was loving God. I was loving my neighbor. I wasn't loving me. And because of that, I was so programmed and it's subconsciously, I didn't know that this is what I was doing. I was wired almost to always take care of someone else's needs, even at my own detriment, at my own expense. I could have gone through hell. It doesn't matter. Their healing was more important than my own. And once I found out that was here in my computer, in my mainframe, I said, oh, we're pulling this out. Because God created me in his image. He loves me. And it would be a tragedy for me to take my last breath on this planet and never connect with me, never love me enough to put myself first. That's not selfish. That's not anti-God. It's actually loving myself and loving God is actually biblical. And, you know, there's scriptures all over the Bible that talks about wolves and sheep clothing. I don't see where it says that we're supposed to do that with the wolves. You understand? I don't even see that model. That's now. a warning to us. That's not right. a go pursue right. them and change them from a wolf into a sheep. It's right. And I think, I think, and you know, I understand we want to be humble and we want to do the right thing. And the whole thing of spiritual bypassing will bypass over our needs, bypass over the abuse, bypass over the injustice in our midst to ourselves, to our family members for the sake of, but this leader, da, 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 da. 
that doesn't mean you have to go crazy and do something that's against your morals, but it's time to honor you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because after you've been through narcissism, no matter shape or form, you need to take the time to rebuild you anyway. Sometimes it's a, I don't want to say a blessing in disguise, but there's an opportunity to connect with yourself in a greater way if you've had to take this path. Trust me, I found myself after going through all of these different cults. I would have not mapped this out for my life, but here I am now. I found me because I didn't fight to try to use a whole bunch of scriptures to ignore the fact that I had to heal me and not worry about the narcissist all the time. So, yeah, that's so important. Would each of you name one resource that you were like, if you read anything or you listen to anything or watch anything to understand narcissism, what would it be? Dr. Romney is very good. She's all over YouTube, very popular. But when I was researching, I, when I was learning about this years ago, I didn't know about her. So Lisa Romano, Richard Gannon uh, on YouTube, Professor Sam Balkin, who supposedly is a recovered narcissist, if you will. And he teaches a lot about it. You know, that's up to people to debate whether they, they agree with the information or not. But it was very helpful to me as far as you know, cult information and, and mind control. Stephen Hassan, H-A-S-A-N. Uh, he has a book called Combating, Combating Mind Control. He just recently wrote a book on, called The Cult of Trump. Rick Allen Ross. Oh, yeah. Cult of what? Trump. The Cult of Trump. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty good. Rick Allen Ross. He has a website called The Cult. Oh, is it The Cult? Find it, put it in. I forgot. Cult Education, I think, dot uh, com. Rick uh-huh. Allen Ross. He's written a lot of books too. Margaret Singer, she's written stuff too. So I, you know, just kind of OD'd on it for a while because I had the narcissism part and the cult mind control part and the spiritual part. What about you, Libby, resource that you? Yeah, there are two I always recommend. One, first Nikki said, Dr. Romani. Go onto YouTube, type in Dr. Romani. It's kind of R-A-M-A-N-I if you're curious. All free her stuff, all of her videos, you can spend a lot of time educating yourself. The other one is not going to sound as attractive to Christian audience, just because the name might put be off putting for some people. And uh, her voice is actually really cool. I don't know why I say that. It sounds like she's been smoking since she was five, but this lady is brilliant. She is so gifted. You'd probably cut out me saying that though. Her voice, like, I guess I'm trying to say like, don't let her voice put you off either, but she goes by the little shaman s-h-a-m-a-n this woman has an understanding of narcissists that go deep deep and wide so dr romani and the little shaman is she on youtube also also on youtube Mm -hmm. okay interesting yeah you guys are the first people that have named like youtube as a resource that's interesting so i love that i feel that's awesome that that is did write a book but which is good but yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think, yeah, another thing to address that we addressed in the Clubhouse book to Clubhouse group also was the fact that a lot of therapists are not trained in this. And so if you're going to speak to someone who is coming out of a narcissistic relationship and encountering a therapist who doesn't really have experience for this, what would you say to them? Or how would you 
counsel them? One thing I'd say is that now this is not going to address necessarily spiritual narcissism, but this is important to address for anybody listening. If you are in a narcissistic relationship, whether it be a parent or a spouse, if you really, if you recognize, no, this person is a narcissist, if you educate yourself on it and say, yeah, they are, I do not recommend going to see a therapist. And I'm usually the first one to be like, let's go to see a therapist. Do you have any problem? Why do you say that? When you're dealing with a narcissist in therapy, the narcissist, they, they wear a mask most of the time. They're experts in wearing a mask. There's no way a therapist in one hour a week or one hour every two weeks is going to be able to see the mask slip. The mask slips when there's been an injury or they're tired or they're just done using your energy, you want to move on. What often happens, often, is the person who's not the narcissist goes in with the narcissist thinking, oh, this person's going to help me. Therapists are really helpful. The narcissist who doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to talk intimately about what's really behind their mask, often will then use the the therapist and turn it against their spouse. So the spouse leaves being abused by not only the narcissist, but by the therapist who genuinely is thinking, oh my gosh, this poor, well, it turns out the narcissist is being abused by their spouse. More people have had it turned around on them than I can say. And now you're going away with injuries that are doubled. And now you're not only doubting yourself and wondering, am I crazy? Am I insane? I don't want to use those pejorative. You go out of it going, am I imagining things? But now you've got a professional telling you that you're the problem in your family. So if you truly decide this person is a narcissist, I would not drag them. No, you go to therapy yourself, but without them. Okay. So you would say it's okay to go to therapy for yourself, for recovery, but don't take your narcissistic person with you. Don't try and deal with it in that context. And also, even when you do see a therapist or if you have to end up going to court, don't be careful going in to see a therapist and saying, my spouse is a narcissist. Because a lot of people see that as you just being pejorative or rude or And now they're thinking, oh, you're the problem. So go in and describe your exact situation. Describe your feelings. Talk about yourself, your experiences, but try not to label your partner, your spouse, so that the professionals can really hear what you're saying. And it's sad to have to say that. No, but it's, I think it's just a way of being wise and don't just trust someone just because they're a professional. What about you, Nikki? What would you say to someone? No, I mean, and if you understand that narcissists, they're not trying to help themselves. They're not, they don't think there's anything wrong with them. So if they do actually decide to go to therapy with you, it's all a ploy. And like Libby said, most often it's to turn the therapist into a flying monkey. And then like she said, you're getting two for the price of one. But I think the hardest thing sometimes with particularly in a romantic narcissistic relationship is the actual person coming to grips with, they can't help or fix them so that the situation is better. That desire to help, especially sometimes after they find out, you know, there's this whole shock. Oh my gosh. They find out this person's a narcissist. It's a weird dynamic because then one minute you're like, oh my gosh, this is what it is. I'm not crazy. But then it could sometimes switch over to, well, wait a minute. Well, maybe if they just get help in this and this, they won't be like that anymore. It's that false sense of hope that things would be better for them because and the then they were ropes you into that. Like right. they, they like enlist you in that. Like right. especially like- if they know that you are getting a, a clue of who they are, 
that love bombing will turn back up. So then you're like, oh no, it, it's just me. You know, they, 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 they really are good. They person. changed. They, yeah. they repented. They said they were sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and can I say, a lot of people will tell you that, oh, narcissists don't apologize. Oh, are you kidding? Yes, they do. They apologize oh. all the time and they crank it up. It's great. They bring you flowers. Yeah. They buy- chocolate cry cry yeah oh yeah oh yeah Cry before the session i oh i've understood now all i needed was this explanation now i understand i'll never do it again words to a narcissist are tools human beings to a narcissist are tools and oftentimes they know us better than we know ourselves they They find your weaknesses they know because they observe you and and that's why i try to tell people in the clubhouse rooms i do and just people i coach with learn thyself learn thyself yeah whether you're coming out of it you still need that tool just for life in general but if you are disconnected with who you are it is very easy for any narcissist narcissistic pastor narcissistic leader you know, boss, friend, what have you to tell you who you are if you don't know thyself. So, and that brings us to what you asked earlier, Catherine, was what happens when you recognize the church you're in is, is, is not a healthy place for you? And what if you've come from a family like that? Or what if you're so burned, you never want to go through that again? Like I said, you can spend a lot of time in the bed, follow the Lord. But what Nikki was just describing, it was knowing yourself. And that takes time. That's not something that you're going to learn overnight. It is work, but it's a work with a blessing at the end. It's like better than childbirth. It's not quite so painful, but you get you. You get to carry you around the rest of your life. It is worth the work you need to do to learn to listen to the gut that God put in you. I know there's a scripture that people often quote that the heart is deceitful above all things, but we're not talking about emotions when I talk about the gut. This is not listening to your emotions. It is listening to the gut. That's there's a piece there or a, there's a draw to it's a magnet or it's something pushing you away. That's different than, Oh, I feel something though. Your gut is often a feeling and I do not criticize feelings. And if you're around Christians or other religious people who criticize feelings, slowly back away quietly but just keep backing away because God made your feelings and God made your gut. You just start to feel, am I being drawn? Am I being, and if your brain is starting to tell you you're wrong, say brain, thank you so much. Brain, you're a great calculator. You hold information wonderfully. Ever, ever, I need to know like when a war was fought, I'm going to go to you brain, but brain brains weren't made to make decisions. That's what our guts are for. So like Nikki was saying, as you get to know yourself, you're going to hear that more and more. And if you have the two fighting, if you hear yourself saying, I think, or I feel, go with the words feel, go in here, feel. Think is, think is a brain word. That's how the brain talks. Your gut says feel. So, And I know with what Libby just said, someone could be hearing this and say, okay, I don't know how to trust my gut anymore. The narcissist has come and totally Mm -hmm. messed up my mind, messed up my ability to, it's all jacked up. Now, guess what? I don't have the full answer for that. But what I will say is, (laughs) because coming out of a a narcissistic family, my intuition was shut down at an early age. So when I would observe and empathically figure something was not right and I could feel it, when I brought it up, it was shut down. 
because my narc parent was not ready to deal with reality and the truth. So over time that kept happening, I learned to shut down my red flags. So in those red flags, those guts are supposed to tell you, this is not safe. This is not safe. Turn around. And you're constantly having to deny this intuition right. that this is not safe because you have no other choice. Like, right. You have to right. survive. And so you just tamp it down, tamp it down, tamp it down until it just doesn't exist anymore. Which is why it look like it exists. It doesn't. Right. Exactly. It's still there, mm-hmm. but it has to be rebuilt. And that's why when I was unconscious about all of this, I kept gravitating. People say, how in the world did you have so many narcissistic relationships in your life and so many cultic environments? Because I didn't know. I didn't know. I had gut feeling in there, but it had been so torn down from so many narcissists. After I came out, started doing the research, start healing, establishing that back again, it takes work. You have to be intentional. If you've come out of a narcissistic relationship, out of a narcissistic church environment with a pastor or a leader or even in a family, you have to take time to tend to you. I know that putting everybody else's needs ahead of you is what you're used to. But if you want to really heal and get to the point, what Libby said with the, between the feeling and the thinking, it takes, you have to sit with yourself. And oftentimes, codependency issues come up. We run to prophets to prophesy all over us. We run into these relationships. Why? Because we're afraid of sitting with ourselves oftentimes. But when you sit with yourself, you connect with yourself, you learn yourself, this is going to help rebuild that ability to connect with your intuition. It didn't die. It just has to be rebuilt. Yeah, I would definitely say the things that helped me rebuild. Well, one thing of not ever losing myself was art. And I was involved in theater and I was a writer. And so I was still tapping into that intuition as an artist. And I think that I never fully lost it and killed it because of that. I'm seeing that now. I was like, I think that saved my life. And then on the other side of it, yoga, meditation, all of these things that just got me into my body and, and just being kind to my body and listening to my body and not hating myself and not hating my body. Those are the things that um, allowed me to regrow that. And just even just saying, I'm good, like I'm good because you're just so torn down. You, it's really hard to think that of yourself. Oftentimes if people are in a church and they're going, they're questioning, is this a situation for me? Is this not, is this good? Is it not? What label do I put on it? Here's something that's going to happen in all narcissistic relationships, confusion. Things aren't going to make sense. If you find yourself going to church and your brain's trying to make sense, if your brain is working to make sense of something, unless it's like some riddle from when you were a kid, no, life that's a place that's healthy. You're not trying to figure it out. You're not. So confusion is a hallmark. If you recognize yourself confused a lot, that's usually a hallmark. The other thing I was going to say about rebuilding. This is just, I look at it just slightly differently and here's, and I could be, I could be way off. Okay. This is my theory. I don't think our gut needs to be rebuilt so much as I think what I picture it is we assault it. We pile stuff on it. It gets buried beneath a, a, yeah, beneath a mountain of what society, whether it be a church culture, family culture, 
car choose, whatever. So that we don't hear, but it's still there. I believe I like that. God, yeah, I, like that. I believe God put it in us and it is still it, no matter how much you've been abused, it's in there. It's in there. What's going to happen is you're going to learn how to hear its voice. And it's not really even as hard. You're going to first go, don't tell me it's not hard. I've been asking for three years to hear this. I, don't tell me it's not hard. But with, with a little support, I, I hear you 100%. What, I'm going to, what I usually ask people to do is to sit down and try to find a safe place, maybe their bedroom. If that's not a safe place, maybe it's your car. But go somewhere where you can feel safe or at least as safe as you can be. And maybe it's in a public place. You'll feel safer than at home. And that's okay, too. If you feel safe enough to close your eyes, I ask people to close their eyes to do this exercise, only if they feel safe. You can do it with your eyes open if you want. And then if they want, they can, and they can also do it in bed if they'd rather. But if they're sitting, if they want to put their feet on the ground, that's great. Not necessary, but sometimes it feels good. And then I ask them to take three breaths and I ask them to inhale through the nose to the count of three and they can figure out how fast or slow they want it then to hold it to the count of three and then to blow out at the count of three and then pause and do it again. And I ask them to do that three times. So after they've done that, that kind of helps their body sometimes just settle down just a little bit, but it doesn't put pressure on you to do a whole breathing exercise. And then I remind them that if there is something inside of them that God put there a gut, like I believe there is, I think that, and they maybe not listened to it because they thought they were wrong to listen to their gut. I asked them to go ahead and just talk to their gut and tell them, you know, you can say something like, hi, I'm here. I'm sorry. I haven't listened to you all this time. I really appreciate you sticking around. Thanks for not leaving me entirely. Even though I haven't heard your voice, I want to start hearing your voice. So if you speak up, I promise I'm going to try to hear you. And then I'm going to ask you a question now. And if, if you're willing to talk to me, that'd be great. But I then ask them to ask their gut just one little thing they want at that moment. And what normally happens is the person thinks, well, well my gut didn't say anything. And then I say, okay, now let's go back to when I first asked you that. Remember that first thought that came to you that you already decided was so ridiculous, you barely let it in your brain. Let's go back to that. And usually people can identify if they sit there and go, now, what did I already say? No, that's wrong. That can't be that. And, and it, they might be surprised there. Maybe their body's saying, gosh, I was going to start with, I want to drink of water. But what came to me is maybe their body's going to say, I want to cry. Or maybe I'm tired. I want a glass of water. I want an apple. It could be, I want an eraser. It could be, I want a doll. It could be, I want sex. It could be, I want to scream. It could whatever was the very first thing. And you might not even be aware because you're so used to blocking out saying, oh, that's wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Go back and just ask your body again then and see the very first thought, even if it's the most ridiculous thought you've ever had. And then do it. Get the drink of water, get the eraser, whatever it is. And I promise, well, I shouldn't promise you. I'm pretty darn sure that your gut has been waiting for you to come back. And I'm pretty darn sure that it's not going to give you something that's impossible to do. It probably won't say, get me on moon and then I'll start talking to you again. But it's like a trust relationship. And as you learn to listen to it, you're going to hear its voice 
and it's going to speak to you more quickly. And you're going to be surprised at how quickly you can hear, but it's going to take time, like the building of a relationship of trust once it's broken. So that's what I usually say. Taking time to build your relationship with yourself. Thank you guys so much for this time. Do you want to let people know how they can find you? If you're willing, do you have Instagram, anything, websites, anything that you want to let people know about how to find you? You can find me on Instagram. It's Libby Lou Davis. I always regretted that my parents gave me that name until it's now unique enough to use as my handle. So that's L as in Lisa, I, B as in boy, B as in boy, Y. L as in Lisa, U, no O, just L U, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, I, S as in Sugar. So that's my Instagram. And you can reach me that way. You can also, if you want to email me, I'll give you my email address. It is similar. It is L I B Y. So it's Libby. Then it the, the little dot. Then the capital letter L is in Lou, but no U, just the L dot Davis, D A V I S at Gmail. Feel free to reach out to me either way. Great. And if want questions and I want somebody to scream with and cry with. I'm sure you're a great cry buddy, Libby. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Nikki? How can you- Instagram, you can find me, Nikki G at a beautiful mind 1818. As Libby said, if you want to email, you can email at Nikki G speaks at Yahoo. And I am presently working on building my website, but you can still send me an email, add you to the list when it's done at NikkiGSpeaks.com. So mm. that is my info for now, but feel mm. free to send me a DM or email if you have any more questions. Also Clubhouse on Sundays at 2.30 uh, Central Time, Dallas time for those listening. The first Sunday, second Sunday, and third Sunday at 2.30 Central. I do, I host rooms in Clubhouse on spiritual abuse and cults. So you can find me, Nikki G on Clubhouse and you can find the club Spiritual Abuse and Cults. You can follow it. I'm in the room. I talk about a lot of these topics in there. So that's where Amazing. I met Catherine and Lippy. Amazing. Clubhouse was good for making connections. Well, this was fantastic. I really appreciate both of you and the work that you're doing. You'll continue to stay in touch and partner with each other because we're all doing similar things. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.